You are now listening to the Hack My Age podcast, the show that brings you guests for biohacking women over 50. I'm your host, Zora Benamu, a digital nomad, certified sports nutrition and breathing coach, and master student of gerontology at the University of Southern California. I'm the author of the Longevity Master Plan, the cookbook Eating for Longevity, and a new upcoming program, Energy Reboot for Women 50+. Plus. Now, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and I would totally appreciate it if you could please leave a review on Apple Podcast to help others find us too. This is a small but very critical gesture that makes a huge impact for me to support a podcast for older women and to help us grow stronger and really get our voice out there and attract even more amazing guests to the show for you and for me. Hello, age disruptors. Today, I'm recording this podcast with a live studio audience. All of you attending this recording now are members of the Hack My Age VIP program. And part of being in this exclusive club is the ability to dial in and watch the interviews as they are recorded. And you can ask your own questions. If you want to be a part of this amazing community, go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash hack my age and sign up not only for these cool interviews, but so much more. Before we start, I am so excited to announce that I've been invited to speak at the Biohacking Congress in Boston on June 11th, 2022. I'm going to be speaking about a topic that rarely gets attention in the biohacking community, and that's biohacking for women who are over 50, which looks at the specific health needs and solutions for older women. And I'll be giving hacks to this audience that is often overlooked, but this is also a valuable insight for the younger biohackers about what they can expect for their future selves. So join me on June 11th and get your tickets at biohackingcongress.com and use the code BOS50 for 50% off the virtual congresses. And if you happen to be in Boston or nearby, you can join the live in-person congress for free. So if you can't make it in June, there will be many other amazing speakers at the biohacking congresses in Miami in October. So look out for those. We are so lucky to have a conversation today with the one and only Dr. Kara Fitzgerald, who is going to really break down the science of DNA methylation and how we can actually reverse our age. And I found Dr. Fitzgerald on Instagram and loved her message about aging. It just so resonates with mine. And she just wrote a book called Younger You, Reduce Your Bio Age and Live Longer Better. So who doesn't want that? <laughs> and her book has been highly praised by all the big players in our biohacking space, like Dr. Dale Bredesen and Dr. Mark Hyman and Dr. Sarah Gottfried. I just love these people. And I loved reading the book. It was amazing. And I can highly, highly recommend you to read it too. And today we're just going to scratch the surface of some of the topics of her book. But if you want the deep dive, just go and get it. It's on Amazon. And uh, Dr. Fitzgerald is a naturopathic doctor and a functional medicine doctor certified with the IFM's functional medicine certification program. And she's the first ever recipient of the 2018 Emerging Leadership Award from the Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute in recognition of her work on DNA methylation. I know I've said that word two times and you probably don't know what it is, but she is going to explain and share exactly what it is. And Dr. Fitzgerald is really well known in the wellness circles and is a leading voice in nutrition, epigenetics, and aging. And you probably already came across some of her work in the media, such as in prevention and MSN, everyday health, all and many, many more. And she got her doctorate from National University of Natural Medicine. She is on the faculty of the Institute for Functional Medicine and is an IFM certified practitioner with a clinical practice in Newton, Connecticut. So if you're looking for a functional medicine doctor in that area or on telemedicine, she's got your back and I will have all her contact information in the show notes. So now without further ado, let's meet Dr. Fitzgerald. Welcome. 
Thanks for having me. I really look forward to this conversation. I'm so excited to talk about this book. I, I really, really loved it. What is the difference between a naturopathic doctor, a traditional doctor, and the functional medicine doctor? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, a naturopathic physician is a, is a, is a four-year professional degree, like, like a, a medical doctor. We do an undergrad in pre-medical sciences, same thing. And then you go through a four-year professional training. And many of us go through postgraduate training and residency. So I did a two years in a laboratory and, and, and in a clinic as well a residency in integrative medicine. So we're trained in all the organ systems and, and it's standard of care. And then layered on top of that are natural interventions uh, as well. So a traditional doctor wouldn't, wouldn't go down that path. So that would, yeah. So we have training in nutrition. We have training in herbs. We have training in nutraceuticals. Our medical biochemistry training is traditional medical biochemistry, but, but there's nutritional biochemistry layered in. And so there's a lot of emphasis on natural interventions. Yeah, a lot. So would insurance cover a naturopathic physician? Some places. Insurance, I'm in Connecticut and we're, we're covered by insurance here. Other places we're not. So one of the challenges is that we're not licensed to practice medicine in all of the states. And we're not, we're not Medicare eligible. So the real limitation on this credential. If we were Medicare eligible, like medical doctors or, or osteopathic doctors, then we would be able, we would be in the hospital system and we would have residencies that would be built into our training, et cetera. But we just don't have that yet. Hopefully we will uh, at some point in the not so distant future and have sort of the rigorous postgraduate training that conventional doctors do. So now what we have to do is the residencies that we have, and we do have a, quite a few of them, but they're very competitive. There's not enough residencies, or in my case, I did a postdoc in a laboratory. There's not enough of those postgraduate training opportunities for all of the graduates. And so it's, it's challenging. It's just, it's such a disappointment. We should be, naturopathic medicine, functional medicine should be first line primary care. It I should totally unequivocally agree. be first line primary care. We should be licensed everywhere. We should be within the insurance model if, if we choose to practice within that model. It's just not the case at this point. Functional medicine is a structure of thinking through cases. So naturopathic medicine lends itself to the functional medicine model very well, but any physician or allied health professional can practice through the functional medicine model. So Institute for Functional Medicine is, is the, I'm on faculty there and, and have been a part of, of IFM for many, many years. It, it's the original training program in functional medicine. The founder of IFM is Jeff Bland, and he's considered to be the father of functional medicine. And Jeff, you know, some other functional medicine luminaries like David Jones, Michael Stone, Leo Gallen other individuals got together and began to develop the functional medicine lens. So how we think through cases, it's a systems medicine model. So we're looking at the, at the person as, as a whole being, as an interconnected whole, their relationship within their environment, their relationship to their previous generations, their, you know, lifespan, et cetera. So, so all, you know, like a 3D, 4D interaction with, being as you know, whole person in an environment. Anyway, the, the simple way to articulate that concept is systems medicine. Thinking ca through cases, through a systems medicine lens, takes a structure that's able to capture that level of complexity. And I think the secret sauce of the Institute for Functional Medicine is that they developed a framework on which you can, handle, you can hang this level of complexity and work with the person in front of you or telehealth and move them through the process of getting to root cause medicine and turning it around. And it's, it's really, it's extraordinary. I mean, it's just an extraordinary model of medicine. And, you know, again, it should be primary care. It should be the, the entry into the medical system should be through functional medicine. And it, it's happening more and more. I, the other thing that I love about it is that it's very collaborative. Um, many different practitioners embrace this model and do very, very good work. So it's not limited to a certain credential or body of credentials. Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine has just been wildly successful. There are more universities adopting functional medicine centers or offering functional medicine residencies. So it's 
the best positioned, I think, of the postgraduate trainings out there to really move the needle in terms of how we deliver healthcare in this country. And actually, you know, beyond that, it's embraced around the world, you know, so I was just noticing that they've launched the base training that it's called the AFMCP, Applying Functional Medicine and Clinical Practice. So that's the first sort of rigorous training that people take before they move on to the the modules. And I teach in one of the one of the later modules. It's in Colombia. It's been in China. They've offered it in Australia. It's in the UK and had the opportunity to teach functional medicine in India and in Ireland and also in the UK. And just, you know, we've taken it the global over and just everywhere people are are interested and sort of eager for this model. Totally agree. This should really be the first primary point of of medical care in any part of the world. It's it's the one that's really going to make the difference. It's the one that gets to the root cause of a problem rather than just throwing medicine and, and drugs and everything. So I know, I know there's a time and place for drug interventions and all that, but greedy, it just seems as so, so much can be done with the approaches that you, you share in your book as well as a naturopathic doctor and a functional medicine doctor. And it'd be interesting to hear what you say about your experience in India and China, for example, I used to live in Hong Kong and I organized um, a conference about uh, aging and I invited different speakers. And one of them was a Chinese medicine doctor. And she uh, was listening to all these other speakers and she got up and she was like, everything you're talking about has been talking about, spoken about for 3000 years in Chinese medicine. Like, yeah, it's that's about right. time you yeah. guys, you know, came and woke up. I felt that way when I was when I was presenting in India. They were really excited about be, bringing functional medicine. It's like the it term. So they were super excited to have it. But I, and I was like, but you know, you guys have been doing this stuff, and 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 the, you've been doing this forever. And and the first conference was a large nutrition conference, and it was amazing to me how they really had it packed with the latest science, really cutting edge, extraordinary stuff that hadn't even really quite penetrated in the U.S. yet, plus this appreciation of, of Ayurveda and, you know, the traditional approaches that are so woven into the culture in India. But it was just, I was, it was very to me because both, both journeys, both kinds of thinking about health and science, et cetera, are really embraced in that culture. Yeah. So they, they did, they presented them together, like really quite seamlessly. Whereas in our country, that would be considered an integrative, you know, medical conference, you know, that you wouldn't yeah. see the Ayurvedic wouldn't be covered in a standard medical conference. Well, it'll get there hopefully one day. That's really would just hope my, you know, that the future changes for the better. If so many doctors or traditional doctors go through their practice and then disillusioned, and then they decide to become functional medicine doctors and things like that. But what your journey sounds like you, you kind of started already from the get-go as, as a naturopathic physician, you wanted to, to go there right away or how was, how did that journey happen? So it was, you know, it was a similar kind of a debate of what credential to get. I, I mean, the decision was actually easy for me because when I was thinking about what I was going to do for medical school, I became sick. I developed chronic fatigue. I just burned the candle at both ends. I was in my early 20s, mid 20s, and it took me a while to get better. So traditional medicine didn't have anything to offer. I was going to urgent care and standard and primary care, just the easy access doctors for somebody in their early 20s. And they didn't have anything. They didn't have anything at all to offer me at, at really at all. And then I saw a naturopathic physician, my landlady recommended I go see her physician. And he's a ND here. He's still practicing here in Connecticut. Um, Dr. Jeff Klaas, he's one, he's one of the longest practicing doctors here. And she's, she was in her nineties, you know, and she said, go see my doctor. And he got me better really pretty easily. He gave me a little CoQ10, some mitochondrial support. He gave me a little cocktail of, of botanicals. He told me to eat a little more greens. Like he didn't, he didn't gut and rebuild my diet. He had to deal with my adherence at that time, my willingness, and he did. And he gave me some very basic recommendations. And I, and I think he wanted me to get a little bit more downtime. I remember during that period, my recovery period, walking a lot. He tested me for the Epstein-Barr virus, and I did have high titers. So my chronic fatigue might have been um, a reactivation, kind of a probably had mono or, or something like that, and Epstein-Barr-driven driven, um, fatigue picture. And he got me better. It wasn't rocket science, but it really, really worked. And I was also working in a health food store at that time. And um, 
in the supplement department. And they would always send us, you know, white papers and of the chemistry. And I remember my manager, who is still one of my best friends on the planet many years later, didn't like any of it. And she'd, she'd give it all to me. And I was absolutely in rapture with this nutritional biochemistry. It was fascinating to me, fascinating. And then there was a book that really influenced me quite a bit called Udo Erasmus by Udo Erasmus called Fats That Heal and Fats That Kill. And that was all about, you know, omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids and the eicosanoids that they produce, all of the molecules produced by fatty acids uh, he got into in this book. And I remember it keeping me up at night. I was like, I cannot read this. I won't sleep. You know, I was that jazzed up about it. And so the alchemy of these experiences came together and I really knew what I had to do. I need to go to naturopathic medical college. And, and it really was a very satisfying training for me. It was a lot of fun. And I was out in the Pacific Northwest, which is where Dr. Jeff Bland is, the father of functional medicine. And I had access to him. I got, he, he was lecturing quite a bit in that neck of the woods and other, you know, masters in our field were there. And the field is small. It was small enough then, and it continues to be small enough where you can train directly with many experts as you're, as you're compelled to do. And I just felt blessed. And then right after that, I hopped into my postdoctorate position at a clinical laboratory under the direction of very highly regarded nutritional biochemist in our field. So steeped in it. So I have this naturopathic medical training, but I did a lot of work in nutritional biochemistry and just a million percent loved it. You know, Jeff Land's also a nutritional biochemist. And then concurrently, I was in a clinic as well. I wouldn't have been able to do that, I think, in any other training structure. So naturopathic medicine just afforded the freedom for me to get that really specialized, cool background. Really interesting. It's like, it sounds so like the naturopathic doctor you saw, it's so such a simple thing he did. A little CoQ10, some botanicals. Yeah. And you were searching for everywhere. And here is something quite, that's quite amazing. I can see the inspiration and you're, you know, it's a, it's unfortunate you go, you weren't well when you're twenties, but it's fortunate because it sounds like it put you on the right path of where you want to go. And you were inspired and now you're inspiring so many other people as well to take control of their health. This episode is sponsored by Primadine, a supplement that if I had to choose only one, it would pretty much be this one. It's because Primadine is spermidine. And this has been shown to activate autophagy, which is super important. And it's basically a cellular cleanup and recycling process that declines as we age. When we get older, our cells accumulate a lot of junk and a lot of waste, and this isn't really great for us. So we need to clean it up. So if you want some research, go to primadine.com and you can see all of it supporting cognitive health and heart health, hormone balancing, and long and strong hair, nails, and eyelashes by using spermidine. So another very important reason why I love primidine in particular so much is that I've never had received ever as much feedback about a product as I have with primidine. Literally several times a week, someone reaches out to me on Facebook or Instagram with an amazing testimonial. And most of the time it's about improved sleep. So I can honestly say that I can 100% be convinced now that primidine is the best spermidine supplement you'll ever find. And you can try it with a 15% discount by using the code Zora, Z-O-R-A, on primadine.com. And that's P-R-I-M-E-A-D-I-N-E.com. Now enjoy the show. I'm curious to know how, why you decided to write this book about aging better and living younger and what, why, because... You, you look very young, I know, but you know, you you said you, you are your age before. <laughs> so whatever you're doing is working, but yeah, I'd like to know when or when and how this inspiration is to, to, to dive deeper into aging better. Honestly, I came from the, like the left. I didn't directly nosedive into wanting to be a biogerontologist or into the longevity space. It's just kind of interesting how it happened. And it's, I don't know. It's just really extraordinary. So coming from a lab background where we were looking at some of the complexity now, like, so my book is about epigenetics and we're going to talk about that, but we're, 
Since we mapped the genome, so we mapped out the human genome, we've got 23,000 genes about, we figured that out in about in the early 2000s, and we thought that we would identify one gene causing one disease. And, you know, we had this idea that it would be the Rosetta Stone and, 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 and direct treatment and research, everything um, after we did this. But we found out that it didn't. In fact, it was infinitely more complex. And genes actually don't play a very big role in health outcomes at all. There's a handful of very significant genes, but really by and large, it's up to what the choices that we're making every day and you know, what we're eating in our lifestyle, et cetera, et cetera. And so that human genome project and sort of the limitations around it kind of ushered us into what we can call the omics era, where we started to look at how genes express what gets turned on and what gets turned off. We started looking at the genes in, the, in our gut microbiome, and we looked at the proteins that our genes make. We started to have the technology and, and the intelligence to be able to not just obsess about genes, 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 it's all about our genes, but then just blast into seeing how our genes are being expressed and turned on and the interactions with our microbiome and on and on and on. And it's called, all of this is called sort of the omics era, the omics revolution. So genome, microbiome, epigenome, which is where I looked. And so that's where we are now. And when I was in the laboratory, we were sort of a precursor to all of this. So it was kind of natural for me to be thinking about epigenetics in my clinic practice. So I left the lab and in about 2013, I was reading the literature on cancer and the tumor microenvironment will take over gene expression from us. So it will turn genes on and turn genes off to promote its survival. It really sucks. It takes it over. And one of the ways it does that, so this is so when we're talking about gene expression, this, the field of science is epigenetics, epi above genetics, the gene. So above the gene, what turns things on and off? A primary way that we turn genes on and off, there's a, there's a whole number of them, but it is called DNA methylation. So coming back to that state, the, the comments you made in my bio, when you have a methyl group and it's a carbon and three hydrogens, if you can go back to your, you know, your high school biochemistry. In scientific literature, it's always denoted as a red lollipop. So imagine like a red lollipop, a lollipop on a stick. And when there are a lot of these methyl groups on a promoter region of the DNA, those red lollipops block it from being able to be turned on. So they're blockers. We can remove them or inhibit the displacement of them. And when there are a few of them, then that gene can be turned on. So as I just said to you, you know, cancer, lots of, lots of science, it was probably the most focused area of research in DNA methylation. If you're in functional medicine, and some people are in, in your audience are probably taking B vitamins and folate and B12 and maybe betaine from beets or choline from eggs, they're doing that because their doctor wants them to have an efficient methylation cycle. So methylation doesn't just happen on the DNA to turn genes on and off. It actually happens. We're using this carbon and three hydrogen structure to metabolize chemicals, to make different metabolites. Like we're doing it to change structure of fatty acids in our brain. We're doing it to make acetylcholine, which helps with motor function and say important brain neurotransmitter. We use methyl groups to make dopamine, to metabolize estrogen, to make adrenaline and on and on and on. So we, we want methylation to be functioning efficiently. And so in functional medicine, we got that early on. And one of the things that we did is prescribe B vitamins a lot in, in, in order to help this. And so I think my question, no, I know my question back in 2013 was disordered methylation takes place in cancer. Some, as I said earlier, some genes, the tumor microenvironment will turn off. So it'll hypermethylate. It'll take a lot of methyl groups and it'll put them on. And, and that class of genes are called tumor suppressor genes. So the BRCA gene is one of the famous ones within this. And it'll just hypermethylate these guys and shut them down. But oncogenes, which allow for the spread of cancer, they'll, they'll pluck off those methyl groups and then those oncogenes can drive cancer forward. At that time, I was concerned that was there anything we were doing in functional medicine that could potentially be harmful here? And to that end, we decided to develop this diet and lifestyle program. At that time, we, brand, we called it the Methylation Diet and Lifestyle. And I lectured on it to professionals and I lectured on my background thinking. People were quite interested. In fact, I lectured on it around the world, actually. I did a 
training in South Africa and Ireland. And I trained the, the Cleveland Clinic team was, was, was very interested in it. And, you know, I lectured on it at IFM. So people were interested in it in the background. And the program we put together was designed to optimize epigenetic expression with an eye towards this, the cancer science. But what's pretty darn extraordinary is that aging, the changes that happen to DNA methylation, the changes that happen to epigenetics, this is ridiculously important, look very similar to cancer. So the aging journey looks like the cancer journey. Like as we age, we actually turn off these protective tumor suppressor genes, even when we don't have cancer. We allow these oncogenes to be turned on. And when you look at the epigenome of cardiovascular disease and diabetes, like the chronic diseases of aging, similarly have this, what they call in science, aberrant DNA methylation patterns. Research now suggests, and this is pretty darn extraordinary, is that the root cause of aging may actually sit right here in these damaging DNA methylation pattern changes. And they've already shown in animal studies that if you aggressively reverse it, you can make them young again. So if you directly address DNA methylation, you can make them young again. We can talk about that later. It's extraordinary. So here we were starting the conversation about thinking about cancer, and we catapulted into the fact that we were actually looking at longevity. And if we were, in fact, making a difference in DNA methylation, because aging is the biggest risk factor for all of these chronic diseases, not just cancer, but dementia and diabetes and cardiovascular disease, even COVID, infectious disease, if aging is the risk factor, and if we are actually making a difference in the way that we think we are, then we might be reversing biological age. Our program might be reversing biological age. And if it is, it has the potential to actually reduce the risk of all of these chronic diseases at once and not just siloed out diseases. So we were given a grant to conduct a randomized control trial. And that was our first question. You know, because we can measure aging in the epigenome, what were we doing in our participants as compared to our controls? And that was the, the extraordinary finding and why you're aware of me now, because it was the first study of its kind, the first randomized control trial of a, using a diet and lifestyle intervention that showed reversal of biological age by over three years. And healthy subjects too, which was interesting. That's right. We want it. So again, going back to the point that methylation DNA methylation changes with age. So we were looking at, we only wanted to look at healthy guys, but we still knew that methylation would become aberrant. It took us a while to re recruit to actually find all the, the, the healthy men. But so what we were able to show was that our intervention rearranged those red lollipops towards a more youthful pattern. It's amazing, actually, what you've proven. I hope that inspires other scientists and researchers to do more. It already has. I mean, that's why when you were mentioning the people who've endorsed this book, yeah, you know, my mentors, Jeff Bland, Dale Bredesen, and they will use looking at epigenetics. So they're, they, they will use this, this technology in their, in their research. I mean, Dale immediately is incorporating it into, um, you know, into his work Programs. on Recode. Yeah. So it is changing. It's incredible. You know, when we first, I'm sort of going in a rabbit hole a little bit and you can stop me, but in, you know, in 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17, I mean, we didn't know about biological aging wasn't particularly thought to be able to be, you know, reliably measured. I mean, we got into the conversation because we were thinking about cancer epigenetics and it turned out we were actually on track to think about longevity and therefore, you know, potentially address, you know, many other issues. And just to give you an interesting kind of understanding of the influence of age, when you look at lung cancer, of course, we think smoking is the biggest risk factor, but aging is the biggest risk factor by far yeah. for cancer, um, for lung cancer, not smoking. And so I think that just illustrates if we can get in there and make a difference on the aging process, the potential is just extraordinary, you know, in savings to this country. I mean, we're bankrupting ourselves as a, as a country because of health healthcare spend. Our quality of life, you know, in our older years sucks. I mean, it sucks. I think after 60, most of us have two significant diagnoses in, and we're on multiple medication. And that means that all of our inheritance, what we're going to pass down to our kids, all of this is going to go towards 
this massive medical complex that sort of keeps us propped up. I mean, it's such a grim picture and yet can take charge. Like we can step into the driver's seat. And I think science now is, is suggesting that we can potently improve our health span, likely our lifespan right along with it, with safe interventions. Absolutely. I'm 100% on board with you. And you're right. Yeah, this is what we've studied in gerontology. Yeah, age is the biggest risk factor. You know, why isn't age classified as a disease, right? So we can take an all systems approach to solving problems. Instead, we have like siloed out incredibly expensive, you know, research programs that aren't talking to each other and these one drug trials. And oh my God, you're right. You're absolutely right. I forgot that you had that degree. We were talking a lot about it. It's yeah. So you know this, you know this. <laughs> yeah. And we just took a social policy class and yeah, the medical system in the US is just overloaded and it's a big problem. And all what we came out with is it's a big problem, but no solutions really. There are very few solutions and it's just going to burst in our face. But I was surprised that not a lot of talk on prevention it was kind of like a side note. And I'm like, no, I think <laughs> we need to get the naturopathic doctors and the, you know, the, the functional medicine again, you know, on medical care, Medicaid. That's exactly right. And, and then also give them some training in working with epigenetics and using some of these tools. But yeah, yeah, it's a hundred percent. We're going to, and you know, the other piece is the care, the caregivers. I mean, the burden falls on families and, and, you know, often the women in the family. I mean, my, our nutrition director is you know, taking care of her mom. And I, that side of things is so heartbreaking. And I think about, you know, I was talking earlier about my landlady who lives so fabulous, but she had to give her house over to the government, you know, for her final year medical care and, and, and so forth. I mean, it's just, it's just not cool. So don't want any of that in my years working hard for my, for my kid. I mean, she should have it all. It's, I definitely don't want to be in a skilled nursing facility, sort of propped up, kept alive in quotes. Well, actually, there's, I think it's only between three and 5% are actually in nursing homes. And I was surprised about that statistic. Most people, according to the research, want to age in place. So the big challenge, at least in the US, is to how can we support those people aging in place? And what a lot of people don't know, uh, and I've been sharing it with lately, people I'm meeting is, is that there are government programs that are supportive of that. Every state is a little different. So you kind of have to look into that. So you will have to ask about, uh, you know, you can get handlebars, grab bars put into your bathtub or better lighting, and this will be paid for, um, or at least partly. I mean, again, every state is a bit different, but it's definitely worth investigating because I think people don't really know that uh, because what we've been presented with our research is that it's actually cheaper to keep people in home aging in place. And if that's what they want, we have to figure out how to make those people independent, at least, and so they can take care of themselves or get, you know, again, then there's a big question, do we pay caregivers? Like, because like you said, it's usually women giving up their job or working part-time, women already making less than men. And then we put less in the system. So there's less for us in social security. And it's um, not fair. So how are we going to support these women? And, and it's, a, it's a big burden. And women are caregivers, well, caregivers in general, are just as sick as the people they're caring for and may die early because of the caregiving. So it's a big stress on their life. So we do need to highlight caregivers. How, what are we going to do to support them? And it's just this big Pandora's box to open up in terms of the healthcare system. But that's all the other, other tangent. But I want to get back to your book um, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, you talked about DNA methylation and I think, you know, hopefully people grasp that this is really an important factor in terms of aging. We want to have optimized methylation. This is something that regulates the epigenetics in our body and our genes. We have what genes are on and off. Yeah. So I think people are yet. It's the gene turning on and off the epigenetics that is more important than the genes themselves, right? So you have your genes, thanks to your mom and dad, but they behave in different ways. And it's those behaviors that are important to age optimally. And you correct me on this, you know, there are certain genes we want flipped on and some of them that we want flipped off. It's not like we want everything on or everything off, right? So DNA methylation, epigenetics, you know, regulating gene expression is exquisitely important all of the time. 
in embryogenesis. So we decide the fate of pluripotent stem cells via DNA methylation. So this stuff, this, this pluripotent stem cell will be, you know, my retinal cell, and this one is going to be a skin cell, and this will be, you know, form a, my teeth, et cetera, et cetera. And we do that, we create that through, through DNA methylation and demethylation as primary epigenetic activities. Um, in early infancy too, is another huge epigenetically, very, very active time. And if, you know, any of us who've, who've, who've raised kids remember how fast they were growing, right? Isn't it crazy? I mean, you can see them heal. My daughter could heal a cut. It seemed like in an hour, <laughs> she's just like would knit it closed or, you know, all of a sudden one day she's sitting up and then two days later, she's standing, like everything just went so fast. They're learning and they're, oh my God. And a lot of that's mediated by epigenetics. And it's interesting when you see lack of contact and, and, and appropriate caregiving or nutrition and you see damage to epigenetics, you can see the, the reverse and they're aging slower. So the, in early infancy, they're supposed to be aging fast. It's just, the, you know, it's the nature of what they, where they are developmentally. The vitality of epigenetic changes that are happening at that time are sort of the equal and opposite to aging. So aging is as epigenetically important as it is early on, but we're actually sloping down increasing our vulnerability to diseases. Like I said earlier, we're shutting off our tumor suppressor genes. We're allowing our inflammatory genes to be turned on. I mean, a, a hot question in science right now is what the heck is this about? Like, why are we basically killing ourselves? And is it a programmed phenomena? So it does seem like it is. It seems like there's some sort of a time point built, baked into gene expression, you know, that gives us a certain lifespan. And and we become vulnerable to these diseases. These diseases are sort of turned on in us. And so when you look at the epigenetics, when you look at those lollipop patterns in a young epigenome versus an old epigenome, they're like the equal and opposite. David Sinclair says, you're not, you know, you, you just need to start as soon as possible. And I, and I would argue that in my book, we want to be eating for our genes all the time. But we need to be fighting the good fight. Like we need to be putting very intentional energy into preserving a healthy epigenetic pattern. Absolutely. And I think that's fundamental to a good health span and a good lifespan. You highlighted that really well in your book. I was, I was so surprised how deep you went in <laughs> and talking about it's actually you given a protocol for what to do when you're pregnant, what to do when you yeah, are a baby, right. what to do when you are a teenager and what to do, you know, at each stage of life. Isn't that fascinating? The, the science in there's just, it's, we're busting out of the seams with science and it's just going to be more and more and more and more. It's, we're still new in this field, but like, you know, the fact that prepubescent boys and they're engaging in massive spermatogenesis, they're about to hit sexual maturation. And that, you know, that spermatogenesis process is a hotbed of epigenetic activity. And this is what they're going to be handing down to offspring. So in that one study the, from the overcalyx cohort, we saw that when you eat, when prepubescent boys are eating in excess, their offspring will be influenced by that negatively and not just their direct offspring, but, you know, subsequent generations. So it's, it's extraordinary. So you're, you're, you are right. Like we really want to be mindful to eat for our genes. And it was, it, I guess it was hard for me to look in the literature and not want to like include all of these little tidbits in the book. Cause it was just so fascinating to me. You did include a lot. And in, and by the way, people don't know, you do have recipes in there. You've got yes. cookbook and meal plans and, you know, it's just fascinating. Yeah. So you show exactly how to do it. What, what does it mean eating for longevity and uh, eating for your genes? And absolutely, you're, you're right in the sense, I totally agree with you that longevity starts in infancy or even when your mom's pregnant or your grandma's, ex you know, childhood experiences. I mean, yes. all of this, we know now we have enough research showing that your DNA is influenced by your mom, your grandma. And it can yes. be passed down. And so, okay, we can't control that, but we're born with certain changes in DNA and we change them for the better through epigenetics and DNA methylation, which is exactly what you share. And this is what yes. I loved about studying gerontology because people think, oh, you just study old people. No, we actually go through the whole life course from birth to death. The experiences we have in our lives things that, yeah, you very often you don't, don't control of thinking of Ukraine and all the people going through this war, absolute uh, trauma. And this is actually changing their DNA. It's changing their DNA methylation. It's changing their epigenetics. And 
not for the good. So, so we need yeah. to, but we, we can uh, do some damage control. And that's what I consider your book is that damage control. <laughs> and um, and yeah. we can flip it on, flip things on, flip things off. So I, I'd love to give some, some great uh, tips. So I think we clarified, you know, in terms of DNA methylation, epigenetics, hopefully everybody's got that. Um, yeah. Let's dive into some practical things uh, that I, that I found that, so many great things that I, I'm going to bring up. Hey, I'm butting in for a quick second. If you enjoy the content brought to you in this podcast, consider supporting Hack My Age by becoming a patron on patreon.com. This is where you can drop a tip or become a member for the price of a coffee. Members get special material, free coaching, and private Zoom calls. Join us by going to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash hack my age. Thanks for your support. Now let's get back to the podcast. I want to focus on the older woman, okay? Women over 50, 60, 70, 80s even. So let's put on that hat because that's who my audience is and, and we're thinking about that person in mind. So what would you say is a, and your book has it all, but if you had to just pull out a couple of them in terms of you know, reversing your, your biological age and maybe explain you know, generally chronological age versus biological age as well. So chronological age, the number of years, the number of birthdays you've celebrated, the trips around the sun, you can't do anything about that. And it's arguably not an important number. Biological age will supplant that. And that's what we'll be thinking about. Really, honestly, it's going to be kind of a cool revolution. So somebody who's chronologically 80, I'm working with this amazing man, um, Alan Steelman. He's 85 and his biological age, I think is, I don't know, 57 or something. I forgot what it is. And, and that's how he presents. He's just such a, a cool guy. And he's got a, a longevity book out that he self-publishes, but that's the important number for this man. And he's clearly somebody who's put a lot of work into it. So biological age, chronological age, the number of years you've been here, biological age is how rapidly your body is aging. So it's measurement of the body deterioration process. And, and this varies profoundly from person to person. And how are you measuring that? So yeah, there's a handful of different ways to measure it. We're using what is considered to be the most rigorous, and that's looking at patterns of DNA methylation in a, what they call a biological age clock. Our study, our first study used the sort of the flagship bioage clock developed by Steve Horvath out of UCLA. So this came out in 2013. I mean, this is new science. And that's what we used in our first study. So that's a first generation clock. And there are second and even third generation clocks now using DNA methylation patterns. They are trained against data looking at morbidity and mortality. So diseases and time of death. And you can use these different clocks to predict. You can use the grim age clock to predict time of death. You can use Phenoage clock to look at morbidity and disease likelihood of, of developing the chronic diseases of aging and so forth. So the clock technology is galloping forward and we have, we're continuing to research it. I don't want to make it too complicated. What I want to say is it's fun. It doesn't supplant going to your doctor and having your standard battery of tests, making sure your blood pressure is good. All of the, our, all of our standard tools are still to be used. And if you're in functional medicine, working with a functional medicine doctor, better yet, you're going to be doing additional really important investigations like specialized lipid panels, or maybe you're looking at your gut microbiome, you're looking at nutrients and stuff. All of that needs to continue in our, in our practice. But you can also layer in what your bio age is using, some, using these DNA methylation tests. And I think it's fun and cool, and it can be very useful and motivating it's, it's rapidly developing, but expect it to become standard of care. So expect at some point you're going to be learning your bio age at your annual physical and, and, and that kind of thing. And that will drive how you're living and, and how treatments are prescribed. But if somebody wants to get a little kit, you know, there's so many kits out there. Is there one that you'd recommend? I do have a resource guide in the book that you can look at. I am right now working with True Diagnostic, the laboratory True Diagnostic, and they're going to be offering a direct-to-consumer kit with a, a pretty affordable price point. And I recommend working with them. And, and the reason is that they're, they're using the same technology that we used in the research setting. And in fact, I was worked with them for a long time on this new test that they're going to release that's simpler. It's not as comprehensive. So the, when we were looking at DNA methylation in the research setting, we were looking at almost a million of those red lollipops, like a ton, way more than the average person needs. So there, it's, it'll have a more affordable price point. 
I think that's the one that I would recommend. I, I would say you want to be mindful when people have proprietary tests. So if they don't, if they haven't published research on it, if they aren't willing to sort of let sci- other scientists know where those red lollipops are, like what their clock is based on, that might be a mm. little bit of a red flag. True Diagnostic works with Harvard and Duke and well, they work with us. We're conducting our research with them now. They work with so many different research scientists and they're not keeping their Yeah. Oh, I love hearing that. Their their science proprietary. Because I'm I my functional medicine doctor's got me, she, you know, wants me to do a test and I'm doing a podcast soon with them as well. So I'm really pleased to hear that. It's giving me confidence. Oh, you're gonna do a podcast with, with true diagnostic? Yes. Oh, sweet. Are oh, you going to talk to Ryan? Okay. All right. Well, definitely tell him you talked to me. I talked I talk to Ryan. Really? Oh my gosh. He's, yeah, it's, am- it's amazing what they're doing. What when women over 50 yeah, can do to age younger? They want to follow the core program. And, and, and so they want, so our original pilot study was conducted in men. And the reason that we did that is because the population is between the ages of 50 and 72. And if you're a woman in that population, you're either premenopausal and cycling regularly, you could be peri, you could be post. And teasing through the hormone changes with women, the hormone complexities with women with a small population, because ours was a a pilot study. So it was by definition, not that many people would have confounded our findings. So we had to go with men. We have a early cohort of women who've finished doing the the intervention within our app, the 3YY app. And I'll publish a case report on these guys. I think these ladies, Mm. uh, they just rocked it. So it's pretty exciting. It's really nice to see it in women. And of course, my own bio aid is really good. So in here, anecdotally, we have in the clinic people using it, you know, women using it have done well. So they want to follow that core program for sure. But specific to women as we age, unfortunately, is the loss of estrogen, the loss of our sex hormones. And that pushes aging forward, especially when we hit menopause early. So that drop in estrogen really costs us a lot in terms of our biological age and possibly testosterone and progesterone as well. And I talk about this in the book, you know, you want to lean on those nutrients that may have some phytoestrogenic activity. I think it's a time to consider clean sourced soy, clover, maca, et cetera. We really want to lean into those and hormone replacement therapy may, may be entirely appropriate. As a naturopathic physician, you know, I was a little bit more reticent, a little more resistant to it, but have come to appreciate the use of bioidentical hormones and the fact that we can make sure that we're moving them out of our body in a very clean way is, you know, is really heartening. And we can measure that if we want to, we can see how we're clearing hormones. Probably bio, bioidentical hormone therapy is an important piece of the longevity puzzle for those women who are appropriate candidates and who want to do it. The diet, fortunately, the nutrients that one needs to eat in the program are amazing for making sure we're moving these compounds out very, very healthfully and safe, safely. That's one piece. The other piece for us women, us you know, older than 50 and, and just moving on is making sure we're getting enough protein. In my next book, I will speak to that more and the higher quantities that we need to ingest and the fact that we're not getting those numbers often. Postmenopausal women are not. We want to have some good muscle. Now we don't need to be like Thor <laughs> or, or Thorina. Sorry. I'm sorry. We want to have muscle. You know, my doctor measures, she's got a bioimpedance analysis. And so she's able to measure my muscle mass. And when I first started working with her, I, I was a, an athlete, competitive athlete. And, and so I've been, yeah, I love to exercise. It's always been a part of my world. It's easy. It's like my, it's my antidepressant. So I, I do it, but my muscle mass was in the 80, 80s. It was in the 80th percentile. So I had, I had higher muscle than most of women in their fifties, but she was like, uh, 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 you need to be in your nineties. <laughs> and so I started, I started intentional resistant train resistance training. So I, right before the book launch, I was like sort of Rocky. I was like, I was making sure I was getting out on my bike, which is my favorite thing to do. And then I started to do some um, resistance training as well. And now my muscle mass is up in my nineties and it, it, I, we don't need to be bulked up, but we want enough protein to be able to build and maintain muscle. We don't want to be too crazy on protein as you know, we were talking about Walter Longo earlier, his, some of his research suggests that overloading on protein might be a pro-aging phenomenon, you know, increased risk for things like cancer, but there's a sweet spot for protein and we don't want to underdo it. And women tend to, Mm -hmm. so follow the diet, get those estrogenic foods in, in appropriate 
quantities, consider HRT or bioidentical HRT, get appropriate exercise, pay attention to stress. You know, you and I were just talking about how much we carry as women and we don't take it seriously. And I will put myself into this category. Being here in Connecticut, I've got, you know, a lot of women patients who are traveling to New York City, they're moms. So they're busy moms and they're also like attorneys or CEO or whatever, you know, whatever big job they're doing out in the world, like you and, and me for that matter. And they say, yeah, 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 I get it. You know, yeah, I'm stressed out. <laughs> <laughs> but it's always the last thing we want to take seriously because we have so many things on our plate. And if we drop these things off our plate, then what, you know, who's going to pick them up? I mean, there's all sorts of dialogues that we have. So stress is, in my read on the literature, gasoline on the fire of aging. I mean, it might prove to be the biggest variable. People who read my book and who I get to podcast with always have an opinion on what the biggest player is. And a lot of us say it's got to be diet. It's got to be diet. It's got to be. I mean, I say it's got to be diet. But on the clock that we looked at, that Horvath, that first Horvath clock used in more studies than any other clock, 25% of it is influenced by glucocorticoids. It's influenced by cortisol. It's crazy. And when you look in the literature, I mean, and we can hand stress, we can hand stress patterns down. And you can see that stress, you know, that early life stress can drive the chronic diseases of aging, can drive aging, total life stress. I mean, just the stress experience pushes aging forward. And I should say toxic stress. I can hear a friend of mine, Josh, saying to me, well, there's also good stress, Kara. You know, there's like stress that's actually helpful and motivating. So there is, there are, you know, useful, like a little bit of the adrenaline when you're about to take an exam and it helps you think or whatever. But, but I'm talking about that toxic overwhelm stress that all of us experienced, for example, in COVID, that was such a hard time. The good news is that we can turn this around. So the research on meditation, on yoga, on Tai Chi, I mean, it's beautiful. It's so cool. The thing with epigenetics is that a lot of the studies look like just one decent meditation event or one exercise experience can have some favorable changes to gene expression. But it's the habit over time that will allow us to sort of spread like wildfire those favorable DNA methylation patterns, the habit over time. So if you think about cell division after cell division after cell division, when new DNA is created, those better patterns can kind of spread through the generations of cells in our body and really make a difference. And so you see practice meditators as being biologically younger. Same with exercise. One of the cool things about exercise, I have to, I say this on every podcast because I just think it's the coolest thing ever, is that you can hand down some of your good exercise habits to offspring. So for those women out there who are preconception, I actually do, as you said earlier, talk about how you can think about eating in the book, but, and men, and men, guys are in this right there. You know, you can hand down some of that information to offspring. I think that is so cool. Exercise will turn on those suppressed tumor suppressor genes. So those protective anti-cancer genes that get shut down when we age, exercise turns them back on and it's more efficient at turning them back on the older we are. So the older folks need to be getting out and getting their butts moving. Yeah. No excuse. (laughs) Oh my gosh. There's there's a couple of things I want to pull out here. One, do you follow Dr. Stacy Sims? I don't know. Oh she would love Is she really cool? You'll have to, yeah, you'll have to. You would send, love her. Send me. She's, You're going to send me something else too. You said. Yeah, no, she Oh, talks, an article from the LA yes. Times. Okay, so you have your little list yes, of things <laughs> you're going to send we, me. But Dr. Stacy Sims, you have to look her up. I mean, you, you'll, you'll love her and you'll be right on track with her because she does a lot of research. She's an exercise physiologist. Oh, cool. And her famous book, Roar, uh, looked at, you know, women all through the life course and kind of opened up that word period and, you know, and train according to your period, eat according to your period, et cetera, et cetera. Now she just wrote a new book, just came out a few days ago called uh, Next Level. And it's for men, men going through the menopausal transition who also want to exercise and smash their goals and do amazing things. And it's a time to speed up, not slow down. Awesome. So you'll absolutely resonate with as somebody who's athletic you love her. And uh, I've got a podcast with her tomorrow. Um, so oh, nice. so I'll be, oh, good. I'll have to, yeah, you know, pass great. on. Well, report. have her ping me if she wants to jump on my podcast. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Absolutely. You're going to love her. So the, um, so she has a program called, um, that I did through, uh, menopause for athletes and athletes are anyone who does planned exercise. Basically, even if you're just going to the gym a couple of times a week, you're an athlete. That's how she classifies it. And so when I brought up 
the Dr. Walter Longo thing on protein, because after I took my course with him, everyone in that class was anti-protein. We're all so scared of it. <laughs> We're all like, yeah. Do you want to go through it? But then I was like, I don't want to turn into some sarcopenic, you know, frail lady. Where do you find that balance and how do we still get protein? And then, you know, Dr. Stacey Sims is all about eating more protein and, and, uh, and especially, you know, as you're athletic, you're, you need that muscle and you're just going to keep breaking it down. And when I brought up the the question about, she knows she's very familiar with Dr. Longo's research. And she said, and I, I really have to learn how to, how to say it in the way she explained it. It was, if you exercise, those negative effects are, you don't need to worry about them. Basically they're debunked. You don't need, so, and, I, and she explained it in a very physiological way. I just can't remember, but it was kind of like, don't worry about it. If you exercise, so you don't have to worry about those pathways being activated, it's pro-aging pathways. So you'll have to do the research. You'll have to learn that. I thought it was amazing. I did talk to, to Walter about that, my recent podcast with him that will probably, I don't know when this podcast will air, but my conversation with him will probably come out in maybe July, maybe. Okay. June, July. I think June is, is, is Morgan Levine, actually one of the developers of, of biological age clocks who worked with Horvath. So she's in, she's coming in in June, but yeah, so he's firm in his position. He's absolutely unmoving. So we talked, we definitely talked about it and pulsing protein. And there's a there's a scientist out there that named Lane Norton who was who was talking about you know requiring higher protein. And Peter Atia has actually been talking about it too. And I was a high protein person, and then I did I I cut it down. My IGF one was was on the higher side, and I've since moved back into not where I was, but certainly eating more. There's a U curve, and I think somebody is just going to really have to kind of tussle with the science to find that U curve. And it may be that we can look at IGF. It may there may be biomarkers that we can look at for our patients and say, here's evidence that you need more protein. And we're, I think we need to tease it out. My experience being in you know the sciences for so many years is that most everything exists in a U curve. That means too little is is damaging and too much is damaging, and you want that sweet spot at the bottom of the U. Yeah. And I do think probably that is more protein than some of what we've taken from, from Walter Longa. I do think so. And especially at different ages, we require. Yeah. You, you mentioned that in your book, uh, over 60, yes. under 60, and that's similar to, yeah, Dr. Longo as well. He did admit, you know, of course, because he, he, through his studies that they found out that you start to have negative effects of getting too little protein after the age of 65. So yeah. And brain volume shrinks. I mean, there's such a far-reaching impact. Yeah. And we know higher muscle mass is associated with longevity. Yes. So that's, you know, that's been well substantiated. Yeah. How are you going to... Um, and this is comparing like the bottom quintile to the top quintile of a population. So the lowest percentile is compared to the highest percentile. Those with more protein, more, uh, excuse me, more muscle just live longer. Yeah. And actually we did cover a lot of uh, frailty, the issue of frailty in gerontology. And never really thought about it, but oh my gosh, it is a yeah. huge problem. And people are yeah. falling and getting injured and they're dying early yeah. because of it. So having a bit That's more right. muscle mass will help part of the puzzle of with the, with the frailty. So really important. I'm looking forward to that podcast. Uh, so that's coming out in June or July in the new frontiers and functional medicine podcast, right? It'll be fun to see who, who really can sort of tussle with the, the protein question and tease the science out and I think most importantly is guide us towards what we think are appropriate recommendations for, you know, ourselves and our, and our patients or our clients. Yeah, I think it's just like a diet, you know, I mean, just the diet in general, it's, it's, it, there are different diets for different people. And uh, honestly, I think everybody needs to look at their own bio-individuality. I'll say it like here, that may be something that in the next book you'll see changed, you know, you'll see more refined, may have higher protein recommendations. I mean, it, it's it, of my program structure, that's, you know, that's one thing that I would, I'm open to being wrong about, you know, and wanting to change. Well, actually I say, if you're working out and you're building muscle, you want to consume more protein. I also said that you can use it. It's, it can be helpful to use more protein to help you detox off of sugar. And then of course, when you get older, you need more protein when you're trying to conceive or when you're pregnant, you need more yeah, protein. Yeah, you, I did, did, you did mention that. You did mention, <laughs> yeah, I did, did notice that. And it's all you have to say. It's just, it's different for everybody, right? And the science shows this, but just because the science has been done on, you know, 58 year old men doesn't mean that 
38-year-old active woman is, you know, should be doing that. Just that's just science in general. We need to to you know learn learn how to adapt the science to our own personal story. Um, but I know we have only a few minutes left. And I want to, um, oh my God, we've been through so much. <laughs> we have a lot more to go. So through. many more questions, but I found like, <laughs> I just want to give a couple of little things that you mentioned in the book that were so cool, like activating vitamin D in mushrooms. That was amazing how you just put them out in the sun. Yeah. And yeah, so little tips like that. And, and so you can get your vitamin D, you know, how much vitamin D do you actually get? from the mushrooms by putting them up. In the you can actually get quite, quite a bit. I mean, you can get a lot, but I would not worry about overdosing from that particular form. Yeah. Um, in the same way that you could, if you were taking like encapsulated D3. Okay. Your body can clear it. Well, you have a recipe for that. So if you guys want to get, get I do just go find that. And I thought, and you also cover things like avoid nonstick pans and the toxins in your life yeah. and the plastics and and if you do use nonstick pan, have it with Thermalon. Uh, that was that was a nice little little tip. And you do mention uh, about a f- organic. You know, of course, we need to eat organic as much as possible. But in real life, it's not always. You mentioned, which was quite a really great tip that I do as well, is washing your fruit and veg with one part distilled vinegar and four parts water. Mm-hmm. Let it there for twenty minutes. Is that did I get that? You can correct? do like, you can do a vinegar soak. Yep. I just have a, a, a spritzer filled with vinegar and I just soak them if I need, if I need to, and just leave it like that only because it's, it's easy. So I'm not as precise as what I prescribe in the book. So you spray it. I just spray it with full, full, full vinegar. Maybe, oh. And you could do a 50, 50 split, but you know, I just buy a cheap gallon of white vinegar and, 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 and throw some in a, in a, in a spray bottle and, and do that. And I just have it sitting there on this on the, on, by the sink. It's easy. Does it matter if it's, if it's um, white vinegar or, or it have to be white? Could it be red? Could it be uh, apple cider? It could be any vinegar. I, I think it could be, but, but, but the research looking at that was white vinegar. So it was just old school white vinegar. We did not prescribe an organic diet to our participants and we still saw those turnarounds. They weren't required to eat it. If, if we had prescribed an organic diet, we would have had to give them the diet there and, and we could, we couldn't, that would have been completely prohibitive. So it's nice to see that one needn't be pristine with their eating. Obviously we want people to be as exquisitely pristine with their food choices as possible, but it's, we'll price some people out. So it's good to see that wasn't a requirement. Well, we need to do a part two because I have so many, you, so many great tips that you gave in here <laughs> that I would love to share. And uh, we did go through a couple of them, but I, I highly, highly recommend people just get the book. Thank you. Go- Can I say one thing about this book? I know we're going to keep yammering, but we have to go. One of my absolute favorite things about this book, and you'll have to give me your opinion, is our nutrient reference, our nutrient appendix. So these are, I'll show it up here. It's on, it starts on page. 407. It's 30 pages of gene whispering foods. So 30 pages of nutrients that influence DNA methylation. And it's huge. It's massive there. It's just, it goes on and on. There are so many foods that you're already eating that are gene whisperers and you can turn the volume up. I mean, there's no reason why every fork full of food that goes into our mouth can't be packed with gene whispering information. And so I love that section. I had so much fun building it out. My publisher was like, yeah, we had to keep expanding. (laughs) (laughs) It is so comprehensive. And you're right. I love that. It's actually your book is more like a a reference guide, too, that we just keep on the on the in the kitchen or wherever you need, because you got the cookbook, you got the recipes, you got the, the, the foods. Really, guys, just get this book. It's where's the best place to get the book? What would you It's everywhere books are sold. Barnes and Noble. You can certainly get it on Amazon. Amazon's already selling the used versions, although I think the price is the same. If you can get it from a local mom and pop store, that scores more brownie points for me. But yeah, you can just get it wherever books are sold. It's easy. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Support your local local mom and pop bookstore. So everyone can find you as well on Instagram and Facebook. You're Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. That's with a K-A-R-A. And I'll have all the links to your Twitter and Instagram and Facebook in the show notes. Um, the youngerupprogram.com. That's where people can get into the program if they want to jump into it, get the book where and you know the bookstores. And you have an app, the younger you three YY app. We didn't even talk about that, yep. but that's something the I app think, is 
it houses the program right in that structure. It'll, you know, you can get your test, you can get your biological age test. You can work with the nutritionists that were in the study. I mean, it's a ridiculously cool app. If you go to youngeryouprogram.com, you'll find our app. You'll find where you can get the book. If you get the book and you give us your receipt information, you'll get all of the downloads that we were giving out. So a holiday recipe guide, if you want that, or what else? You can actually go to the to youngeryouprogram.com slash BASA, Biological Age Subjective Assessment or Self-Assessment, BASA. You can get that at youngeryouprogram.com as well. And you can take a little quiz and find out your biological age that way, which is awesome. And then you can do the program and then come back and do that, take that test again. It will send you a copy of your results so you can look and see what you can do better in it's pretty fun. It's cool. This is an amazing project you had all put together. I didn't get a chance to go to the app. I tried, but I think you, I didn't have the receipt. So <laughs> I'll go back and try to try to play around with that because when I was looking through it, it just sounds amazing. So thank you so yeah. much for all the work you do. I'm so impressed. I love what you're sharing on Instagram. I'm an Instagram fan. Aww. And please, you know, keep doing what you're doing. And I hope we can have a part two and just focus maybe yeah. on things like what you mentioned that I think is super important, the community relationships and touch like that is yeah. huge for aging and longevity as well. And as a gerontologist, I'd love to take a deeper dive with that and all the other things for women over 50. So thank you. Thank you for your time. It was so fun to getting to hang out with you today. Yeah. Yeah. We'll do a part two for sure. Awesome. Okay. Have a good day. Good night. Cha -cha. Good morning, wherever you guys are. Hey, did you enjoy the podcast? Don't forget to subscribe to be notified of all the new episodes and leave a review to help build the tribe. It's a small act of kindness that brings me big benefits and helps others find this amazing content. The best thing you can do is share. Sharing is caring. Statements made on this podcast have not been evaluated by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Anything we say or products we mention are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information provided by this podcast is not a substitute for personal medical advice and not intended to replace a one-on-one -on -one relationship with a qualified healthcare professional. It is intended as a sharing of knowledge and information from the personal research and experience of me and my guests.